You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 17 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Sunday, the 26th of July, 2015. My name's Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. And Asha King. Hello, Webland. Busy couple of weeks for us, really, hasn't it? Well, we had uh, two weeks ago at Surf Simply, we put the usual surf coaching program on hold while uh, we redid the biannual lifeguard training for all the coaches. Uh, and also, we got to ask some really cool people to come along and stay and just hang out and bounce ideas around about... Uh, you know what we're doing with the business and what we could be doing next with it and and it was really amazing i got to hang out with uh, bailey richardson who was one of the original eight founders of instagram uh sachin monger who's in charge of all the marketing and e-commerce at facebook so he he does all of the facebook shopify integration uh kai soto who was one of the original guys at ebay and then was in charge of facebook for the whole of uh, and, and instagram for the whole of asia jeff clawson who's also from Facebook and uh, Craig Pierce, who's the screenwriter who I think we mentioned before in the podcast, who wrote Romeo and Juliet and The Great Gatsby and Moulin Rouge. And it was just so cool having all of these people round a table. We'd, we'd kind of go for surfs and then, you know, we'd kind of bounce ideas off each other. And uh, I felt like I did a university degree in like life, business, marketing, creativity. <laughs> it's just my brain kind of hurt at the end. It was just, I'd just be hanging out with such creative people. Actually, Kai took some amazing photographs of the whole week and oh my gosh some, they're incredible yeah they're beautiful and and of all the coaches doing their lifeguarding as well and uh and it's so if you go onto our facebook page onto uh, facebook.com slash surf simply you can see all the photos from the week they're really beautiful and also actually i don't know if you've seen this listeners but bailey and kai made a, a movie which was doing the rounds on facebook it had well over a million views about a really amazing filipino guy called dado bonato and he's the son of a farmer in the philippines who, long story short, went on to invent the chip that is in the phone or computer that you are listening to this podcast on, listeners. Wow. Yeah, it's a really amazing story. So anyway, they, they, and the, the, the guys who made that film, which are called uh, WKG Creative, along with Bailey and Kai, want to now make another movie about how Surf Simply came into being. So they're going to be shooting that over the next year. So we were like figuring out the filming schedule for that. Which wow. is uh, really cool. The, that film that they made actually about Dado Bonato was uh, called A, F- a Farmer's Son, and they based it on uh, the. They were sort of inspired by watching the film A Fisherman's Son, you know, about uh, Ramon Navarro. Yeah. So uh, I just thought that was kind of cool. So anyway, yeah, that's that, it's been a really amazing week. My brain feels like it's going to explode. It was yeah. so much fun surfing with those guys. Yeah, they're, they're pretty high on the stoke levels, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, Bailey and Sasha and Kai have so much fun out in the water. Yeah, and they're putting in like two or three sessions a day, just and on top of all the talking they did. Yeah, it was so much fun. I, I had such a good time chatting with Sachin in particular. He's a really young guy, but he's just super smart. He's got this really analytical mind, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you know when you, you sort of you just uh, you keep coming up with things, and then the person that you're with sort of agrees with you, but you're both used to people people not agreeing with you on the thing. You know, and you, and you yeah. say it, and you're just nodding, going, I know, I know, I know. And then you realize, like, well, usually this is when I would get to argue with someone, <laughs> but we've got nothing to argue about because we agree. Uh, but no, he was a super cool guy. Uh, what have you been up to, Harry? You've been playing with your GPS? Yeah, well, it was quite nice. So Craig, who you mentioned before, very kindly lent me his watch. He had that Rip Curl GPS watch. So I spent a couple of days going out with the Rip Curl watch on one wrist and my Sunto watch on the other wrist and the trace strapped to the front of the board and a GoPro stuck in my mouth and then spent 
quite a long time actually it took me a long time to extrapolate a lot of the data necessary from it all but i've now got a spreadsheet with how they all all of the different data that, that the different devices were pulling last week you must have been the most technologically advanced surfer in the entire world yeah it's just a shame my surfing wasn't as advanced. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what i'm interested to know is is you hear a lot of the data coming back from all of these different tracking devices mm-hmm. and you sort of just take it for granted that it's pretty accurate. But did you find that there was a discrepancy between the different devices? Yeah, there was. There was quite a big discrepancy, which I'm now really interested to bounce some emails back off my contacts at Sunto and at, at Trace to try and understand where those variations are coming from. So I guess when any new technology comes out, then there's first of all the early adopters stage, you know, kind of like how we are with Mm -hmm. 3D printing at the moment, where it's just so fiddly and expensive and, you know, it's just prohibitive of everyone being able to use it. And then all those little problems get ironed out over time, Mm -hmm. combined with the cost coming down. And suddenly at some point, any new technology crosses that threshold and just becomes ubiquitous and everyday users embrace it and can use it. So I guess the big question is, is tracking technology and surfing, has it crossed that line yet, in your opinion? Well, yeah, because I think that, you know, the surfing market is tiny, but the, the GPS technology is definitely crossed. You know, you go back 10 years, like having any device that was using GPS to navigate with, like that was very, very high tech. That was military grade stuff. And now my mm. phone does it. My watch does it. it. You don't even buy a GPS device for your car anymore because it either comes pre-installed or you've got it on your phone in your pocket anyway. So I think so I think the technology has definitely crossed that threshold. It's the application of that technology to a new source. Because at the end of the day all all the all any device spits out is a bunch of ones and zeros and you then have to teach a a computer program to interpret those ones and zeros and spit out something meaningful. So it's it's just we're still at kind of the interpretation of the data is the issue. Yeah. So uh, how about you Asher what have you been up to? I've actually been reading that book that you lent me uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, the the History of Surf by Matt Warshaw. Do yeah. you mean the Encyclopedia of Surfing? No, no, Common Misconception. Uh, <laughs> there are two, both by Matt Warshaw. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, it's really really interesting. I didn't think I was going to enjoy it as much as I have. I it, it's one of the books that I've enjoyed most in the last couple of years that I've read. He, he's a very very good. I mean, because I, I think Matt Warshaw used to be editor at Surfer. Yeah, he was. I mean, he's a very good writer. Yeah, uh, I've always thought that. Us as servers are servers are more of a of storytellers than historians, so it's really nice to have that all kind of compilation of a of, of, of historical stuff. Yeah, Matt Warshaw seems like one of those rare characters in the surfing community that has a lot of attention to detail. Yeah, mm-hmm. I feel like he would be a good guest on our podcast. Yes, I would love to. Uh, I'd love to interview him. Also, we got sponsored by Firewire this week collectively. Surf Simply did, which is kind of cool. So yeah. uh, we're going to be getting a whole load of uh, Firewire boards in for coaching on it. I think we're probably going to start off with just getting the advances. Um, just for the intermediate surfers. Yeah, for sort yeah. of the level two, level early level three surfers. Yeah. So, you know, they have the 6.6 six advance, which is 48 litres, and then the 7.6 advance, which is basically 70 litres, yeah. which is about the same as an 8.6 NSP. So you can drop a size in foot without really going down too much in volume. Let's pack some serious volume in. Precise. Yeah, they have. There's a lot of the Firewire boards that have done that. And I think that's a pretty smart move for them as a business, mm-hmm. actually. They've got their sort of high-performance ones as well. But I think we're going to get those in. And uh, I also thought I might get myself a little 510 Pizalian. I was Ooh. having a look through the Firewire website. And I've now got a list of Firewire boards that I'm going to buy for myself. Yeah. How about you guys? You got your eyes on any? Yeah, I'd love to get one of the little Tomo boards. Yeah, that's I'd, what I was thinking. I just can't decide which one. Yeah, I really want to give the Kelly Slater Tomo, the one that he's been playing around with, a that's try. The Evo. 
the Evo, but when I look at it, it would have me riding a really small board, like a, a 5.2 or 5.4. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I don't really like the size of my 5.4 Hypto Crypto, and the volume isn't really a problem. I just don't like that small of a board. feels a little bit like a toy. Yeah. So maybe what we should do is get in just a lot of Firewire boards, take them all out, and then just do a full episode on Firewire Quiver Review. Yeah, sounds fun to me. Sounds if you're listening, Firewire, <laughs> bring them on. So going into the news, obviously the biggest news story uh, this week, unless you've been living in a very dark cave in the middle of nowhere, has been Mick Fanning being attacked by a shark in the middle of the final at the J-Bay Open. Uh, we'll come back to that story in a little bit because we've actually lined up an interview with a, an expert in the field that can hopefully shed a little bit more light than any of the three of us can. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, there's a lot of general misinformation about sharks going around mm-hmm. the interweb already, and I feel like the Mick incident was the catalyst for a lot of people getting just unreasonably irate about whether heated. it was an attack or whether it was an incident or an encounter. So we've got that interview coming up a little bit later on. Yeah, indeed. So first up, just a, a few other little things that have happened in the uh, in the surfing world. The first one that, that I noticed was that uh, someone else in the UK has now put a planning application in for a wave garden uh, just outside London. So it looks like the UK might soon be a pretty good surfing destination. A hub of artificial waves. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about the Surf Snowdonia wave, obviously, a lot on the podcast. And we've all been really excited to see what kind of wave they're putting out. And they released the first video of the wave and i think it was at half power but it was a bit of a dribbly little left yeah see now i'm wondering if did they release that or was that was that footage never meant to see the light of day there's a bit of me that that wants to say you know oh they you know they've snuck that out like just building the anticipation but actually everyone was so frothing on it and then that came out and the amount of disappointment that you heard from the entire surf community and, and that footage was pulled very quickly mm-hmm. and it, it survives it is still out there we'll we'll, we'll post it up because as, as soon as it went out there it got reposted on on youtube so it's still in existence but all the surf media that had posted that pulled it really? so obviously surf snowdonia got on them and said okay uh, sorry guys we gotta <laughs> look i mean i think that the the surf snowdonia wave garden is going to be a lot of fun and we're heading up there in october is the plan to go and check it out so we'll do a little review of it on the podcast after we've been up there but I just purely from a marketing point of view, I would have waited a little bit and shot something a little bit slicker. I mean, when you watch exactly. that Globe video, Electric Blue Heaven with Dion Agius. You want to book your ticket right then. in the wave pool with the Russian supermodels dancing in the foreground. And then you quickly cut to the Surf Snowdonia one where there's just the girl pumping a across suit. the wave. And then there's these two sort of middle-aged guys with pot bellies sitting on the side. In <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not quite as attractive. But, you know, I think it, I mean, it's a really minor thing. It's, it's not too important. And I think it, I'm still looking forward to doing it. We should do a wave pool tour of the world on our new Firewise. Yeah, sounds fun. <laughs> We're such a bunch of tools. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the subject of genuinely the best surf, did you see some of that footage coming out of Chopi this week? Oh, oh my gosh. God, that wow. was incredible. Well, first of all, I think we've got to say that Kiala Kennelly... She, that must be the biggest, heaviest wave that any woman's ever ridden. Oh, yeah, it has to be. Which is just fantastic. I mean, she is an amazing individual, an amazing human being. So in the interview with her, she said, oh, I didn't even really realize it was going to be that, that heavy. I was actually kind of sad I didn't make it. Do you, do you believe that? Do you think she was on that wave and didn't realize how big it was? Yeah, I think that that's perfectly possible because a lot of that wave kind of would jump up behind you. So kinda, you wouldn't really know just how thick it's going to be when you're towing into oh. it. You know? Well, the other one I noticed as well, and I, I'm, I'm not 
entirely sure what the direction is that does this, but do you remember when Laird got that Millennium Wave? A long time ago now, but... Mm. It's right the uh, Millennium, I believe. <laughs> Indeed. But um, you know how when it, that wave folded over, the lip was like half the height of the wave was the lip folding over, that real sort of slabby thing? Mm-hmm. It was doing the same thing the other day when all this footage came back. It was folding over and the lip was half the thickness. So actually, if you were standing there in the barrel, you wouldn't be aware necessarily of how much water, was water there was on top of that lip as it came over. Did you see that wipeout clip? Oh, God. Whoa. That was, that was, yeah, that's probably the worst wipeout I've ever seen. He's got to be winning wipeout of the year for that at the end of the year, I would think. Yeah, it's a shoe-in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although apparently he came out of it with just a slightly stiff neck and that was it. Yeah, I read that. Which is just incredible. Did you see Jamie O'Brien as well, once again, just taking something dramatic and making it ridiculous? Yes, yeah, surfing, surfing massive chopu wasn't enough. He had to put on a hooded wetsuit and light himself on fire. <laughs> I mean, he's just a, such a fantastic character. Yeah, Jamie O'Brien is such a legend because everybody else, you know, surfing massive chopu, obviously. It's such a kind of a tough guy thing. And like, oh, I would take it so seriously. And Jamie goes out there and is trying it on the soft top or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's exactly how you should be approaching uh, surfing. Actually, if you, what you should do, listeners, we'll put the link to it. But Surfline have just run, uh, you know, one of their slideshows where you slightly annoyingly have to sit through 15 seconds of adverts before you can actually start looking at the feature but it's worth looking at really really beautiful series of photographs really amazing from those few days of big swell by the way i I was just looking at surfline's homepage, and it's like they've they've taken it all the way back to like a mid-90s homepage. no they haven't touched it since the mid-90s it's always been like that oh i kind of felt like it Maybe I just didn't notice how old-fashioned it looked last time I looked at it. Well, so the only thing that's changed is the adverts down the side, but it's it's still very Web 1.0. I mean, it, I, it's slightly why I tend to use Magic Seaweed, because it's just a, a, a more user-friendly yeah, website. Interface. Yeah, the, the, surf, the Surfline homepage is kind of like you're being shouted at from your computer screen. <laughs> yeah, they're currently, <laughs> they're currently running that new Quicksilver ad campaign on it that is definitely shouting at you. Yeah, I like the sort of websites, you know, the new Squarespace type templates where you turn it on and it's like you're just being seductively whispered at by the website. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, that swell in Chopu is going to, I think, I mean, I think we're going to get a little bit of, uh, a little bit off the back of that over the next couple of days. It's looking quite good, which should mean then that the US Open might actually, for once, deliver some good waves and some, some impressive surfing. I'm, a, I'm more excited about the side events at the U.S. Open. Uh, I'm really looking what, forward to... the girls to... on the beach with their phone numbers penciled on their butts? Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to and that. And but... Ashley twerking. <laughs> <laughs> that was the most viewed YouTube video from last year's U.S. Open. Yeah, there it was. Yeah. No, but I'm looking forward to Joel Tudor's event, the, uh, the duct tape invitation or that longboard contest. See, now, I've always... I mean, you know, you uh, know more about longboard competition than I do, Asher, but... It struck me that Huntington Beach isn't an ideal longboard wave. I don't know, especially for the prior two U.S. Opens, where they've run the duct tape, it's been so much better conditions out there for a longboard than shortboard. Yeah, that's true. They especially when you get that, uh, that kind of outside section where uh, you really have to hop through to get to the inside, the longboard just cruises. Yeah, that's true, actually. That, the, the, the old Huntington hop section where it kind of goes fat and then the shortboarders are just trying to get through to the inside to get that one last maneuver in. It's basically just the Huntington Cheater 5 section. Yeah, that's the, that's the, perfect, uh, that's the perfect place for doing some longboard footwork, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, but this is, uh, it's one of the few events that really highlights traditional longboarding and, and by far the biggest stage for it. Uh, so, yeah, the, the boards have to be, I think, over 9 foot 6. It's got to be a single fin. Oh, really? Yeah. So they're really pushing the old school kind of style and boards. Yeah, mm-hmm. do you remember they did that 
they did a video series on it, didn't they? The, the documentary, which made me lose a lot of respect for Joel Tudor because he just came across a grumpy dick. Yeah, he's, kind of, yeah, he's a bit, he's a bit kind grumpy. Of, for someone who has quite a sort of, you know, zen-like persona in the media, he's kind of a grumpy man. So what was going to be the main news this week was the J-Bay Open taking place. It's one of my favourite events. Some really great surfing took place out in the water. More nine-point rides, I think, in this contest than any of the others. The finals day up until the incident was incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it's always kind of tricky watching the contest when you're in the States or in Costa Rica just because of the time zone differences. But, the, yeah, the waves they had were amazing. It was great catching up on it afterwards. It Tell you what, it did make me think, though. If you're out there, WSL, what I really think you should do is on the homepage of the website, when you first go to it and there's a contest running, there should be a pop-up window which blocks all the scores and results and just basically says, do you want to watch today's action from the start? And then you just click it and there you go. You're right in. That's super easy to do. And I think even better, and we've touched on this on the show before, but I think that you know the day stream is, say, eight hours. It would be so easy, given that they're going through that anyway to load all of the heats into the heat analyzer, it would be so easy for them to make a like 90-minute or two-hour kind of highlights package, which yeah. isn't just five minutes of rock music and the best waves, but so you can actually follow it with the action going on. So they kind of have something similar to that now, but it's a little bit hidden on their page. They have really condensed version, versions of the heat where it's still all the commentary and it's all the waves not just the scoring rides, but yeah, it kind of goes it's through just, it. It's just, it's the waves with the commentary that took place real time, isn't it? They just cut out all the non-surfing. What I would like would be just a string of that, kind of like you said, where I could, it condenses the heat down to about eight minutes. So if it just had a string of those that you could go watch instead of having to go to the heat analyzer or just uh, yeah. kind of sing the whole day. Yeah, and I think they could put it up so you could watch it. So you, you get in from work or you wake up in the morning and, and you know, the contest was running for the, uh, during the night in whatever time zone you're in. And you can just click and you can, yeah. you know, just watch that kind of two hours while you have a pizza and a beer. And that's kind of a nice length for a sporting event anyway. Mm-hmm. I, and I think they would probably find that as many people were watching that as watching the live I, stream. Well, I think probably more. I mean, especially if they then had someone just commentate, you know, that, that eight-minute, take the 30 minute heat condense it down to five to eight minutes have someone just give a, a very condensed commentary of what happened in the heat not necessarily commentate the waves mm-hmm. but just like here's what happened here's the story break to an advert come back in next heat break to the advert come back in like you could sell that all over i think it'd do really well i think they do a pretty good job of that now but they just don't have the commentary, the commentary they don't have the storytelling about. which is what's important if you're going to condense something down and you're going to take things, obviously, in sequence, but not with any note to the chronology. You know, you might have nothing happened for 20 minutes, and then there was a mad flurry in the last five. You need to tell that story somehow. It'd be pretty easy for them to put out that content and just behind real time, too, because they have two set, they have the two commentary teams, and one's already on, always on break. They could just overdub the Well, they also have, highlights. I mean, the, Although they'd run out of time, though. The, <laughs> Unless yeah. you can also bend time. Well, because the, I mean? the, the WSL, <laughs> the WSL has a huge media suite in LA, mm-hmm. and, I, and my assumption is that a lot of the uh, package stuff is produced there. You know that the, the the raw data is streamed back to yeah uh, LA, and then it's it's put together by guys sitting in the office there. And I think also just going back to what I said before, having the pop up window just pop up and covering everything. 
because I have this really elaborate system now where I open the WSL window, I use my left hand to cover up where I know the scores are going to pop up and use my other hand to cover up where it's going to show who's <laughs> in the heat. So, I don't know, you know, and then I'm kind of using my thumb to kind of rewind back through the live stream. I'm sure they could make that a little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, of course, the highlight of the event, as far as the media, or it's not even the surf media, it's one of those rare instances that made it over into mainstream media, was oh, yeah. the final where Mick met Julian. And, and then, of course, as everyone listening probably knows, the, uh, the shark incident happened and the final was called off and they actually split the prize money. Yeah, they split the prize money, which is the prearranged way to do it. And, but the points, they both just earned equal second equal place. Second. Which, again, is actually prearranged should the contest be cancelled at any stage. There was a lot of talk about how they should have both, you know, they should have split the, the number of points as well as the money. But actually, the uh, the way that they did the split was a, a prearranged thing. But uh, that's actually left us with a, an interesting development because whoever won that heat, whoever won that final... Would have had a, a 2,000-point advantage over the person who got second. Absolutely, and... Uh, I believe whoever won would have gone into first place. And now they're second and third. Whereas now they're second and third still behind Adriano. So it's and actually made quite a big difference going into the, the back half of the tour. And that could be really critical come to the end of the year because 2,000 points is pretty significant, when you, especially when you consider right now first and second are only separated by you know, 250 points. Yeah. So, uh, as we mentioned earlier on in the show, there's been a lot of chatter on the internet about the uh, about the shark incident. A whole media storm. I think I was picking it up from every news agency I could see. You know, Al Jazeera ran <laughs> shark attack surfer in a heat, so it's pretty huge. So we thought that we would speak with uh, a shark researcher and really find out. A little bit of the science. So we're going to bring on now uh, a guest, our first ever guest to the Surf Simply podcast, who's yeah. Derek Burkholder. Welcome, Derek. Yeah, thank you very much for, for letting me join you for the podcast today. Uh, my name is Derek Burkholder. I'm a research scientist at Nova Southeastern University uh, with the Guy Harvey Research Institute and Save Our Sea Shark Center. Uh, and I've also been very fortunate to be able to work with a, a great group of people that started a Another program called Sharks for Kids. Uh, we're a nonprofit that puts a lot of information out there for teachers and individuals to be able to to learn about sharks in the classroom on their own uh, or, or whatever else they want to do. So I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that actually later. And, and I was hoping to get you to dispel some of the shark myths that are out there for uh, for some of our listeners. But but first of all, I just wanted to ask you about the, the Mick Fanning incident that the whole surf world has gone crazy about that happened uh, earlier this week. So did, did you got a chance to see the video. I did, yeah. Uh, working in the shark world, um, something like that happens. We see it everywhere. So yeah, I've, I've been able to, to take a look at it and, and familiarize myself with it. So um, that's, I would have thought that's probably one of the best filmed and documented shark, uh, well, I, I hesitate to use the word attack. That's been one of the big uh, like online debates that's been going on, but certainly one of the, the most documented shark incidents that's happened, I would think. Yeah, I mean, over the years, there's certainly been a number of, of incidents that have been recorded in one way or another. Um, some, you know, whether it be a scientist was working that might have gotten bit or something like that on film. Uh, but as far as the wide reach of, of this particular incident, I think this is definitely one of the one of the widest out there. 
so, so the big debate that's happening online is is people saying, well, was he attacked or you know was it not attacked? And the way that people do on Facebook, they tend to get inordinately uh, upset and irate about it all. I mean, you know, as someone who studies shark behaviour, what was your take on what was going on there? You know, in, in this particular instance, after looking at the footage, um, I would be very far stretched to call it an attack. Um, I think. Unfortunately, that word is misused in a lot of, of shark incidents. Um, there's, a, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people might interact with a shark, um, anywhere from you know, seeing one in the water to having it bump into you to you know, all the way stepping up the line to, to being bit by a shark. Um, but in this particular case, for me, I think it looked like probably a bit more of an investigative um, where the shark had maybe come up to see what was going on. And looking at the vi- video, I think probably one thing that happened is I think it got tangled in that, that leg leash. And when that happened, you know, a lot of these sharks are incredibly sensitive around that, the mouth and nose area. And when they make contact with that, I think that's what started all the splashing, you know. And in this particular case, you can see that, you know, with all that splashing and moving, the shark was was trying to get away. It was not trying to, you know, come back and, and attack, quote-unquote attack, um, or anything like that. I think he hit that leash, freaked him out, and he was trying to trying to get out of the situation almost as as quick as Mick was. So. Am I right in saying that great whites in particular are quite curious about new items in their environment? They will go and investigate things that are new, whether it's a, a crab buoy or a, a lobster pot or a surfer sitting in the water. Yes, absolutely. Uh, many shark species are quite, you know, investigative. They'll go and try to figure out what's going on in their environment, especially if it's something new or maybe a little bit different. You know, and one of the things when we talk about bites from sharks, you know, very large proportion of the time, many of these bites are are a case of mistaken identity. A lot of people talk about that all the time. Sharks have a lot of amazing senses to be able to locate their prey, zone in on it, and come in for a bite. But None of them are perfect, and, and they use them in different sort of levels, I guess, depending on how far away they are, how strong the stimulus is, and things like that. And so um, sharks are definitely very investigative, and especially, like you said, great whites. And so, again, from looking at the footage, it looked like to me that he had come up to try to investigate, hit that, that rope, and kind of spooked himself a little bit. You mentioned earlier that, that you would struggle to call it an attack. You said that it's a word that's overused. So what would you need to see in order to define something as an attack? And is, is there a classification of different encounters and different events? Or is there a, a formalized way of recording those incidents? Yeah, that's a great question. And there is some push right now with different groups. The, the American Elasmobranch Society is one of them, which is a group of shark scientists that is really pushing to change the way we talk about shark interactions in the media and you know anywhere that we're we're dealing with it you know especially when you're getting to that that term attack in this case like i said and it is i i will say this flat out it was a very fortunate you know outcome of this particular incident it definitely could have gone a different way um and so definitely very very happy to see how everything turned out you know but in this case there was no injury whatsoever, right? There was no bite. Yeah. There was no, you know, no injury at all. And so when we talk about attack, I would really be thinking at a much different level at looking at, you know, potentially, and again, it's hard to talk about things like intent or something like that. But in this case where 
you know, they bumped into each other. There was a bit of splashing around. Definitely very scary um, and, a, and a great outcome. But it, it's hard, like I said, for me to call that an attack in this particular instance. Okay. So a couple of pieces of folk wisdom that I always hear, and I wanted to bounce off you as a shark expert to, to find out whether they're true or not. One is that, you know, just because you see a shark in the ocean, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in any danger at all. And, and the comparison often here people use is it's like seeing a dog in the street. You know, just because you see a dog in the street, it doesn't mean the dog is going to come and attack you. Uh, I mean, would you say that that's a fair comparison or is that a bit naive? No, I think that's a great comparison. You know, sharks... They, they live in the oceans. Obviously, they're there all the time. In Florida, we've got a migration that happens a couple times a year with, with primarily black tip and spinner sharks with a few other species mixed in. Um, and there's been some work going on here that, you know, during the time of this migration, this is tens of thousands of sharks moving up and down the coast, very close to shore all at once. And, you know, through aerial surveys and things like that, you know, the researchers have captured an image of one single frame with over a thousand sharks in that in that photograph. And wow, they've, they've done some calculations and determined that if you're in the water during that migration, you're probably within about 40 feet of a shark and you'll most of the time never know about it. Um, you know, with all these animals out there, we're not on their menu. You know, humans are not on the shark's menu any any form. And so, you know, you are very safe to be there, you know, and, and it, again, it's going to depend a little bit on where you are and, and the conditions, you know, if you're looking at muddy water or, you know, sort of that uh, sunrise, sunset kind of time of day, you know, those are times that maybe you want to think a little bit more about, about what you're doing and where you are. But, you know, sharks are in the water and by going in there, like you said, it is a little bit like a dog on the, on the street. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So another piece of folk wisdom that I hear is that if you if you see a shark, you don't have to worry about it attacking you because if it wants to attack you, it's going to sort of get it done pretty quickly and concisely. I mean, is that true, or again, is that a bit little bit naive to think? Um, that one's again, it's going to depend a lot on the species of shark that you're talking about and the conditions that you're in. But in in many cases, if a shark is you know in a mode where it's looking to feed, um, it might generally, it's going to be a little bit more determined in, in its actions and things like that. But like we talked about before, sharks are very curious. And so, you know, if there's a shark in the water and, and you see it and you know, it's there, my recommendation is to, you know, definitely enjoy this, the situation. First of all, um, enjoy being in the water with that animal, but, but pay attention to it. Um, there's been a lot of things shown where that if that shark knows you're there and in paying attention to it, it's going to approach things a little bit differently. That's really interesting. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, what what should someone do when they're in the water with a shark? And just hearing you say, enjoy being in the water with the animal. <laughs> I mean, that's just awesome. You know, it's it's I, I doubt very many people would think to just stop and do that. And, yeah, um, absolutely. But so, so you know, okay. Let's say you're out surfing and you, you're in a situation like Mick Fanning was, and you see that fin come up. Presumably, you guys have protocols of of how you deal with things when you're in the water with sharks. So, what what should we do as surfers if we're in the water and we see one? Definitely, there are many protocols and to deal with different situations. And you know, in in this Mick Mick case, definitely the the water safety that was there was. Um, on point, you know, they did their job incredibly well. You know, in, in a situation like that, you may want to get out of the water if if there's a, an animal that has been in close proximity or something like that. 
you know, like I said, if you're diving or something like that and you come across a shark, that's where I say enjoy it. Sit, sit back, be relaxed. But, you know, you do want to pay attention to that shark. You're in their house um, and, you know, they are an animal that that is large in size and, and definitely very powerful. So people dive with sharks all around the world all the time and can do it very safely. But you do it in a way that you know, you are respecting those animals and, and, and what they are in the water. You don't turn your back on them, especially in the diving. Pay attention to sort of what you're wearing. If you're going into a shark, shark dive, um, generally you want to keep pretty, you know, dark clothing, dark fins. You don't want to have white gloves or shiny things on that might attract their attention, things like that. You know, so it, it depends on the situation, but give them the respect and keep an eye on them, but definitely enjoy it. In your work, as you know, as a researcher working with sharks, are you personally in the water with sharks uh, a fair bit or not? Um, a lot of the work that I do is is boat based. It's um, tagging work, things like that. But I have I've done my fair share of of diving with sharks and spending time in the water with them. And I you know I work with people that do that for a living as underwater photographers and videographers. The other founders of Sharks for Kids that uh, we'll talk a little bit about later. Like I said, do that for a living. And so they spend their lives in the water with sharks all the time. Yeah, our mutual friend, Sam Perkis, uh, I was over at his house not long ago and he's got these pictures of just hundreds of hammerheads that he's in the water with in the Galapagos. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and I was like, aren't you scared these are going to come and bite you? And he's like, oh, not really. And I was like, well, so they don't ever bite you? And he's like, oh, no, no, they had a go at the cameraman's finger. But I mean, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> which I just you know that kind of that analogy of dogs kind of sprung, sprung back into my mind I, I think people often think of it as a very much just we should be terrified of them unless they're completely harmless and it's sort of the truth is I guess somewhere in between but that was really interesting what you just said about not wearing bright colors so I wanted to go on to just debunk a couple of things that I don't know but I suspect might uh, just be bullshit so okay. <laughs> there was a there was a TED talk a few years ago by a guy called Hamish Jolly uh, based in Perth in Western Australia and uh, and he was proposing these kind of black and white striped suits that uh, would were repelling sharks and he was talking a lot in his TED talk about science as if someone had just explained to him recently what science was. Uh, he, he was sort of saying, oh, and then we have to, of course, have a control uh, a test for the science, and we have to do it a lot of times for the science. And it was kind of like, you don't seem very interested in actually finding out whether what you're talking about is true. It seems like you're just kind of reluctantly ticking these boxes. Anyway, I, I guess I wanted to ask you, there's other things on there. There's a thing, uh, there's a thing on the internet called Shark Shield, which is sort of a, a thing you drag behind you that I think emits a, just a sonic pulse. These kind of shark repellent suits and gadgets and whatnot, I mean, are these... Are these legitimate? Are they something that your guys use when you're working with sharks or are they really just kind of like uh, snake oil? There's a lot of different products and probably for as long as people have been in the water and, and thinking about sharks, they've been trying to figure out ways to keep them away from them, you know, in, in some respects. And so there's been many, many things tried over the years, everything from, from scents that you put in the water uh, to try to deter the sharks with a, a bad smell or an odor. Um, to sound emitting devices, to the shark shield like you were talking about, which which emits an electric pulse. The theory behind that particular device is it's designed to sort of interrupt or be unpleasant to the shark's electric sense. Uh, the ampullae of Lorenzini are a, a jelly-filled sac, pretty much, that allows them to detect electric fields in the water. Uh, this is a, it's an amazing sense that sharks have that allow them to really focus in on on their food and prey items and things like that. A shark's pretty unique in having that. 
Yes, absolutely. That is unique to to sharks and and some of the rays and, and things like that as well. So. That's amazing. So, so I mean, so yeah, going back to it, I mean, are you aware of any of these things that are sort of have a plausible mechanism behind them, or have enough evidence to make you feel confident jumping in the water and using them? Yeah. So there's, like I said, there's a lot of people studying a lot of different things, and some of them definitely show some pretty significant promise in in some of the trials that have been done so far. Everything from you know magnets and things like that, again, to kind of disrupt some of these um, senses that they are using. I personally have not done any of that work and, and um, haven't seen it firsthand. I've seen a lot of the reports and a lot of the papers and things like that. And, and definitely some of them, I think, have promise in and I think some of those devices may have very good use in an animal that might be, you know, kind of passing by or something like that. Uh, we go back to that talking a little bit before about if a shark is going into to feed, um, sometimes they're a little bit more intent on what they're doing and may not be quite so easily swayed by something going on you know so i think it a lot of again is always going to come back to context a little bit but saying that i haven't personally tested these devices or anything like that so i get the feeling you know that the idea of being caught by a shark you know i think that that incident that mick fanning had to deal with is probably a lot of surfers worst nightmare you know having a big shark come up but i mean are these devices really necessary you know, they're wearing funny wetsuits or, or dragging around electrodes off the back of the surfboard. It it seems to me that it's it's not a common enough event. You know, shark encounters, let alone shark attacks, don't really seem to be common enough to really require all of this stuff. So maybe there's, a, you know, just a little bit of placebo of just calming down the person who's using it as much as, as it's keeping the shark away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you definitely hit the nail on the head. Interactions with sharks, and especially when you get to the point of getting bit by a shark, are so incredibly rare around the world. And again, that's going to depend some on where you are and, and what's going on. But looking at the amount of people in the water, the amount of sharks in the water, and how often they come together, it is minuscule. Um, it's yeah. you know very, very low rates. But like you said, if wearing that electrode or that wetsuit gives you the peace of mind to go out and enjoy what you're doing or you know even if it if it does deter one animal that maybe was just passing by from from running into that leash and potentially causing an issue you know is it is it worthwhile or not i think that falls into the the eyes of the consumer so so that yeah leads us on to the kind of the shark attack uh, stats because one thing that you hear thrown <clears throat> around a lot is the idea that there's more and more shark attacks and it's on the rise and I know in the surf media, I hear it discussed a lot. And then whenever I actually look at the numbers, the the two things really strike me. One is how incredibly low the numbers are. I mean, it seems like you're hundreds, if not thousands of times more likely to be killed in your car on the way to the beach than to be attacked by a shark, even if there are sharks in the water when you go out there. And and the other one is that even though the numbers are going up, the, the difference is just not statistically significant. It's going from like one attack one year five attacks a few years later, you know, seven attacks a few years later. It's just, it's just noise in the data. We're not actually seeing an increase in attacks. Although I guess perhaps just due to better communication, we're seeing more reported incidents because, you know, people are more connected now. So I guess I'm asking, you know, would you say that there is uh, an increase, a trend increase in shark attacks, or do you think that's just an, an artifact of the data? I, I would say it's probably an artifact of the data. You know, there is going to be 
some ups and downs in, in something like this. These are wild animals, natural situations. So there is going to be a bit of fluctuation from year to year or season to season or whatever. You know, one thing that has been tossed around a little bit when talking about maybe this increase in the last few years is um, it might also kind of go hand in hand with the amount of people using the water is also going up at the moment. So, you know, there's a lot more people in the water. There's more of a chance of an interaction when you've got more people spending more time in the water where these sharks live. So. Right. That makes that makes perfect sense. So, yeah, kind of in line with that increase in water users, that increase in, you know, wetsuit technology and things like that that's putting people in colder conditions for longer. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, shark culling and shark netting. Certainly within the surf media, there was a lot of attention on the Western Australia government's decision to net and to, I think they were uh, drumlining as well, trying to reduce the population of white sharks in in western australia but what's your what's your feeling on that what's your uh, opinion on that because again that was a, a heavily debated topic in the surf media as to whether it was a, a positive thing or a, or not yeah that was the idea of shark calling is something that was debated not just in the in the surfing community but uh, you know across the board it was very heavily debated try to figure out if that's a useful thing or not and i would say probably well i'd say probably definitely not uh, something that is beneficial at all, really. In especially in this Western Australian case, um, they were targeting great whites during this call, um, and out of all the animals that were killed, hundreds of tiger sharks. I don't have the the numbers right in front of me here, but it was a lot a lot of animals. Uh, not a single great white was even caught, let alone removed from the population. And and what it does, it may actually have an opposite effect because. Um, what you're doing is now you're actively baiting. You've got dead fish in the water, trying to attract them to a place. And so you may actually be drawing animals in that, that may not be in that area on their own. They might be coming in to investigate this, this scent in the water or the bait in the water. Okay. And, and so how about uh, in the case of maybe a more passive system that you see uh, a lot in Australia where they just net, you know, a popular beach, they'll run a load of nets offshore uh, and that they've always been heavily criticized for picking up a lot of other marine life dolphins turtles all sorts of things like that yeah absolutely and then again there's there's a lot of work being done to try to make safer eco nets and things like that that may may have a little less in the bycatch but you know i kind of step back a little bit to what we were talking about before with just the incredibly low numbers that were when you actually step back and look at at shark interactions or shark bites or something around the world those numbers are just so low, and does it warrant the the death of all these other animals and other species, many of which are endangered species, um, to to have these nets out there? Interesting. When you see sharks being portrayed in the media, I mean, I imagine that you probably just like roll your eyes <laughs> a lot and just think, oh, gosh, you know. And obviously, I know it's a cliche to say, but I think it's probably culturally relevant. You know, since Jaws came out, they have just been tagged with this um, persona, which is probably largely undeserved. What are the most common misconceptions that you hear about sharks and that you'd, you'd, like to, you'd like to put the correct information out there, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jaws, while a great movie to watch, has definitely done a lot of damage to sharks around the world. They've labeled them with this man-eating 
terrible X on their back sort of thing to have these sharks out there as these, these horrible animals. When for us that are fortunate enough to spend time with them and work with them up close and personal, you know, is, is just 100% not the case. And actually that's one of the reasons we're, I'm doing a lot of the work that I do and trying to uh, introduce people of all ages, uh, kids on up to sharks um, firsthand to actually be able to maybe help change some of these perceptions a little bit. Sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing to get somebody on the boat. You know, sometimes we get kids out there who've never been on a boat at all, let alone seen a shark, and to get them up close and personal, hands on the shark, collecting the data, measuring sharks, putting the tags in, learning about them. And you can see from, you know, the morning when you got on the boat till the afternoon when you step off the boat, a 180-degree turn in, in their perceptions. And they step off the boat and they're telling everybody else about how important sharks are in the, in the waters and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it doesn't usually take a lot, you know, sharks do, they've got their, their persona. And I think once people get to see them for what they actually are, for most people, it is a pretty quick and easy flip from that, that sort of fear mongering jaws type mentality to, to seeing these animals and, and really turning around pretty quickly. Ah, oh, that's awesome. The charity that you're working for, the foundation, how does it how does it work? And like, if, if people want to get involved and they want to help and they want to learn more about sharks, and even if one of our listeners wants to be out on that boat with you, helping tag sharks and touch sharks and re-seeing them up close, where do they go and how can they get involved? Yeah, so there's there's a few different groups that I'm working with, as we talked about before. Uh, sharks for Kids is a is a nonprofit that was uh, set up just in the last couple of years. And we've got a website, uh, www.sharks4kids.com. You can go on that website. We've got curriculum and activities, things like that, that teachers can use in the classroom starting from pre-K and going up through about eighth grade at the moment. That allows them to bring in you know, images and video and, and the science behind what these animals really are about. And be able to, to make it a little more accessible to teach kids about these these animals around the world. Another you know great part of, of what we do is we all love sharks. We we respect them and and know the importance of these animals in our waters, and we love talking about them. And so one of the things that we've been very very lucky is that uh, using both Skype and going into the classrooms in person is we've been able to reach out to people all over the world. Going into classrooms, just in, in 2014 alone, uh, we were able to connect with uh, 27 different countries, talk to about 15,000 students around the world, just with a one-on-one -on -one Skype chat or, or speaking with a classroom or something like that. Wow, that's, that's phenomenal. really cool. And, and what, when, you know, when you're Skyping with kids or a classroom, what, what things do you find get the biggest reaction out of the kids? We've got a, a number of different talks. Um, like I said, my, myself, I'm a, I'm a biologist. I, I study sharks for a living. Uh, Jillian Morris, who's the founder and CEO of Sharks for Kids, and Duncan Brake, the other founder, are both underwater photographers and videographers. So we can talk about anything from diving with sharks to, to videography and then all the way up to the science and things like that. So me in particular, I, I generally focus on the conservation aspects of sharks and, you know, how important they are in our ecosystems and especially kind of highlight some of the sort of the big take home messages of of how in trouble sharks are right now. So, you know, as a, as a species, what should we be thinking about doing to protect them? So one of the things that we discuss in really try to focus on with 
with all the work that we do with sharks is is looking at the conservation of these animals. Um, you know, a lot of people don't don't really realize how diverse this group actually is. When we're talking about sharks, you're looking at over 500 different species around the world. Everything from animals that only get to be about eight inches long at their biggest, all the way up to the whale shark, which is, you know, 40 to 50 feet long, depending on, on who you talk to. So um, there's a huge diversity in these animals, and and a lot of our sharks aren't doing all that well around the world. They're under huge pressures from fishing. You know, sharks get used for a lot of things. Obviously, their, their shark fin is one that gets talked about a lot. Shark fin soup, those sorts of things. But sharks get consumed in a lot of different ways. Their meat's used um, for food. The fins, obviously, cartilage of the shark can be used in medications. Some of the oils might be used in in makeups and lotions. And and obviously, there's a lot of things that can be used for decoration as well. The teeth and jaws and all these sorts of things that you might hang on your wall. All of these things lead to a huge demand for sharks. And right now, there's a recent scientific paper that came out that estimate that sharks... There's about over 100 million sharks are getting killed every single year around the world by humans. 100 million sharks. And to me, that's just a number that doesn't even compute. You know, just it's just such a massive number. And because of that, a lot of our sharks, like I said, are are really struggling. Um, It's estimated that right now, when we talk about all elasmobranchs, which are the sharks, skates, and stingrays, that's about 12 to 1,300 species. And right now, 25% of those are endangered or critically endangered around the world. And many more are being added to that list all the time. Oh, wow. So, I mean, if, if our listeners, you know, want to wanna help out, then they can go to Sharks for Kids. Yep. And also SaveOurSeas.com. Is that the other one that you're involved with? Yeah, the, the Save Our Seas Shark Center and also the Guy Harvey Research Institute. The Guy Harvey Research Institute, we do a lot of work looking at trying to learn about the migrations and and habitat use and movements of sharks around the world. So primarily we're using satellite tags, which allow us to get a long-term, pretty fine-scale look at where these animals are going over the course of a year, sometimes two or even three years. So So I was was actually at Nova University where you work about a year or so ago, and I was in the, the shark research department and uh, one of the guys was just talking me through that kind of map of, of the tagging that you've done and, and how the sharks are moving around. And I think actually it's available online for people to see as well. It and, is uh, actually, yeah. And I was asking him, you know, what in the, there was kind of this triangle that was from like Florida, Florida out into the middle of the Atlantic and then sort of down into the Caribbean. And I was kind of like, you know, what, what's this, what does this mean and why is this happening? And he was kind of like, yeah, we don't really... No, a lot of it is still a mystery. Is, is that sort of, you know, that's the thing you often hear about sharks. Is that is that very much true? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, like we said, there's you know over 500 species of sharks. Some of these things, we're still learning stuff that's so basic, even as, you know, what they eat. There's so little known about a lot of our shark species that we can start to see some new things with, with these tagging technologies and, and being able to follow them around with these satellite tags that have provided some amazing insights into really just how global of an animal these things really are. Um, you know, when we're, when we're looking at some of these tracks, like you said, we've got animals that are moving sort of around the Atlantic Ocean, uh, traveling to the Caribbean during the winter months, heading out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean during the summer, and sort of doing this repeated cycle and over and over. And when we look at that and we start to talk 
definitely when we bring it back to conservation, you really are looking at a much more global scale. You've got animals traveling over 10,000 miles a year, traveling through the waters of, you know, we've, we've had some of our Mako sharks that have traveled through the waters of maybe 14 or 15 different countries, all of which are subject to different rules, different regulations. And in one place they might be protected and they swim, you know, another 20 miles and they're free game again. So it, it really is something that is going to have to be looked at on a much bigger scale to have a, the, the big impact we're looking at. And so uh, are there any countries that are, you know, particularly known to be bad? I mean, I, I, I've certainly been, we're both down in Costa Rica and uh, from what I've heard, this is not a particularly shark friendly country and is, is the base for a lot of shark finning operations. So and are there any countries that are particularly on the, uh, on the naughty list? Um, you know, there's, there's certainly some, some areas of larger fishing pressures, uh, some of the Spanish waters and things like that are, are pretty high, high take zones for, for fins and things like that. But on the other, on the flip side of that, there are some places that are, are doing very, very well. Uh, the Bahamas is sort of one of, you know, one great, at least local for me, example, where a few years ago, the Bahamas was designated as a shark sanctuary. So all Bahamian waters, it's illegal to catch and kill a shark. And that, that largely came out of a lot of the work that's been done looking at these migrations. When we can start to see areas like the Bahamas, which are so heavily used by sharks, uh, luckily the Bahamian government saw that and said, hey, look, we, you know, these sharks are important to our waters. They're important to our country. Um, let's protect them here while they're there. Fantastic. Well, Derek, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and uh, speaking to us. And, and we'll make sure that we've got links to all of those websites and foundations, charities that you mentioned up in the show notes uh, so that all of our listeners can find out more about you and about what you're doing uh, and how they can get involved with it. But, uh, but yeah, thank you very much. I feel like I've learned a lot. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been really interesting right. talking to you. All right. Thanks again. Thank Talk you. Later. Take care. I thought that was... Really interesting. It was really nice to hear from uh, someone, you know, with all the, the media storm around us. I thought it was really good to uh, to be able to talk to someone that knows the subject a little bit more. Yeah, I think, like I said to Derek when we were talking, I think that sharks have just got such a bad reputation among the general public and amongst surfers as just being these bag the bad, bad guys. guys. Exactly. And they're just not these amazing creatures and, you know, they, they, they kind of have very individual personalities. They're all really different from each other. They're mostly not dangerous at all. Yeah. Um, and, of course, they're endangered, you know, and we're killing a lot more of them than they are of us. I, millions a year that we're killing of sharks versus, you know, four or five a year that sharks are killing people. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I realize now that Derek's left us, but I forgot to ask him about the whole Reunion Island situation. But maybe we can uh, have him back on to discuss that on mm-hmm. another episode. So, no superhero of surf this week, but there has been a lot to watch on the web. Uh, Harry, has anything caught your attention? You know what? The, the thing I've been enjoying most, actually, we mentioned it a couple of episodes ago, but the redirect uh, project between Surfer Magazine and Redcam. Amazing. Um, Is it redirect or red direct? Well, there's only one D. Ah, uh, yeah. So, I, I think it's redirect, but some of the videos that have been produced are stunning there's now i think about 10 videos up on the page I'll, I'll post a link we can't embed them because they're they're stuck on surfer mag but i'll post a link on the show notes i've got an update on that i did a little bit of research right before we started recording and if you type redirect or red direct uh, surf 2015 into youtube you can find almost all of them on youtube now they've been okay. uploaded and they're really stunning really yeah. really beautiful films mm-hmm. really beautiful 
Um, the other one actually, and it was only a little clip, but I, I thought it was a nice juxtaposition to what we were talking about earlier with the wave garden, was the pool in the test pool that they have in Spain, which is only a little uh, two-thirds scale. Mm-hmm. But they stuck a load of lights underwater. Yeah, that looked cool, didn't it? It looked really cool, but the really fun thing as well is the wave looked a lot more fun than that clip of the it's size for size. It was actually about the same, but the wave looked like it had more punch and more power than the one in Snowdonia, which is what you'd expect with the one from Snowdonia running at half speed. Yeah, so that's what I'm going to say. I think I think that that's probably because that one in Snowdonia is at half speed. But it does just go to show making a really beautiful bit of film to promote your product is so a important. Long way. Oh, absolutely. absolutely, absolutely. I just got done watching the new Dane Reynolds upload, and as usual, I, I haven't mean, watched that yet. Is it? Um, it. Uh, I don't know. It might not be your style because it's pretty lo-fi. It's oh, about. Does the, it have lo-fi jangly hippie music in the background? Similar. It's I kinda, love that It's kind of like jangly jazz. Oh, time. jangly jazz is one of my favourite shows. I think jangly jazz. I think I could cope with jangly jazz a bit more than the standard lo-fi. I think it's the perfect opposite of the redirect footage. So <laughs> it's kind of lo-fi. It's compl- it's called Dolores Raw, and it's just super raw footage. But oh, it's so much fun watching all of Dane Reynolds' uh, mishaps. He was really going for it. And I like seeing all the, the incompletes. I, I see, I did enjoy I remember what, sitting on the beach in France one year and watching Dane try and try and try and try to nail one manoeuvre. And he f- fell every time for the 30 minutes that I sat and watched him. Mm-hmm. didn't make a single wave. But cool to see, like, that's the sort of, that's what has to go in to make uh, a Making movie like a clip. that. Yeah. And I think that's such a fun way to approach surfing. I mean, when we're coaching, it's something that we're saying to our students, our guests all the time that you should be falling off. You know, eight or nine waves out of 10, you need to be falling off your surfboard, always trying to do things mm-hmm. that you can't do. It's the way to get better quicker. And of course, the more quickly you get better, the more fun you're going to have when you're surfing. Uh, and I think people are always too precious with their waves. And I think that's really something awesome that Dane brings to it. I remember reading an interview with him just after that first chapter came out, the first film he did mm-hmm. over a decade ago now. And uh, yeah, and he was just saying he thinks that one of the reasons he progressed so much was because he wasn't afraid of looking like a kook yeah. in his own words. Uh, and I just think it's it's just a great way of, of, of approaching surfing because it's not like skiing or snowboarding where you're going to break something every time you come off, you know. No. Yeah, no. you can just go for it. I know I certainly do my fair share of falling off when I'm out surfing. Yeah, that's my excuse. <laughs> <laughs> Which leads us into a quote this week. I know we haven't done a quote for a while, but one of the guys that was staying at Surfing last week, Kai Soto, who, uh, who took all the photographs that we actually have on our Facebook page, said something that really stuck with me. So I just wanted to, to leave this with you guys. He said... Every year, I make a promise to myself to learn something entirely new. It has to be something I know I'm going to suck at. It forces me to stay curious, be vulnerable, and learn to learn. I love being a kook. Good quote. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is all that we have time for this week. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and I hope that you'll join us again next time. For now, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.